This morning, we're continuing our study that we've been doing on the fully formed, satisfied life. We said at the beginning of the year, our prayer for us as a church is that we would become people with the deep satisfaction in Jesus, that he is enough for us, that he's actually better, as we were just singing, than any other thing. And one of the things that we wanted to do around that goal is spend some time learning how to do personal formation. And so we created a template, we created a tool, uh, we've been sharing it online this week, uh, the past several weeks, and we've been wanting to teach on a Sunday what does it mean to live a holistically formed life. So we've been looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you want to have your Bibles open to anything today, uh, we'll be reading a lot of different passages, but Deuteronomy 6 is a good one. It's a good challenge, even as you read, uh, I'll read it for us, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It's a good thing to have in front of you just asking the Spirit, where am I in terms of loving God? So this is what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today, this is Moses talking, are to be written on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home or when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as a symbol on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates." And so what Moses is saying, as we've read several times, is this is the command. This is all of the instruction, all that God wants for you is boiled down into loving God with everything that you are and to, to, for that to be what you just talk about and immerse yourself in all the time. And the, the gauge of your whole life. Do I love God? How am I loving God today? That's kind of what he's describing. And so we've talked about how to love God with your heart. We've talked about how to love God with your mind. And today we're talking about how to love God with your soul. Which is, I find, soul to be an odd word. That we don't really talk about that often. It's a type of food. It can be a type of music. Uh, but mostly we think of it in this sort of Greek philosophical sense. Uh, the soul is a, a breathy nebula deep within us. Uh, a, the spiritual part of a person that leaves the body when they die and that the, the soul is the thing that makes you, the aura that makes you you, that's detached from your body. Your body's just caged up in that aura. Uh, it gets to leave when you die. That there's this dual reality the Greeks taught us. There's a, there's a soul part, and then there's a body part. There's a physical, and then there's a non-physical, and they, and they don't interact. Uh, one of the primary kind of beliefs of this is that the soul is your essence. In 1907, there was a physician. His name was Duncan McDougall, which sounds like a cartoon character. But this Dr. Duncan McDougall in 1907 in the East Coast was trying to tap into, does the soul actually have weight? Is that something that's contained within the body? And so he did this experiment where he took uh, very old people who they knew were about to die, and he created this contraption to weigh them. So it was like a bed with scales. And then they would watch, and they would measure how much the person weighed, and then when they died at the moment of death, they would see if something left the body based on the weight. So he did this whole experiment and came out with this release that the soul weighs 21 grams. At the moment of death, 21 grams leaves the body, and that is the weight 
How much is his soul worth? It's worth 21 grams. This was his picture that he was really inspired by. Uh, this is the Greek view of the, the soul, that that soul is leaving that body. Kind of interestingly, uh, he also did it with dogs. To, that was the control, to see if a dog had a soul. And uh, the, the dogs, when they died, weighed the same as before. So it's like, oh, this is what it must be. One of the things about McDougal's finding was, though, that uh, several decades later, even I think it was in 2007 or 2008, the American Medical Research Society said that the whole research was bogus, that it was actually only one person. He, he had six people that were about to die. Only one of them lost 21 grams. The others did not. And the, the scientists around us like, well, we have sweat glands, and so at our moment of death, depending on what, what disease you have, your body might release a lot of weight uh, through sweat when you die. And so that's what the 21 grams is. Pretty fascinating. But does the soul, so maybe the soul isn't this other essence within us. I don't know, what does it mean? Uh, the Bible offers this whole alternative look at the soul. A soul is more tangible than this essence or this aura. It's not, the Bible says, that, that you have a soul. It's more that you are a soul. The Bible talks about how you are a whole being. Your limitations, your personality, your story, the things that you like to do, the things that you're good at, the things that you're not good at, all of that, the Bible's saying, is a whole person. That's who you are. And so Moses is saying here, love God with your heart, love God with your mind, but also love God with your soul. Moses is saying, love God with everything that you are. Sort of this all-encompassing thing. And so today we're going to dive in really broadly uh, to have a biblical understanding of what the soul is. Then we're going to talk about how can you intentionally have these practices that allow you to love God with all that you are, because we can't just decide that's one of the things we've been talking about. All right, great. Go love God with all that I am, with my soul. Is that enough just to decide? Or do we need intentional practices that remind us, that draw us back into that reality? So we'll look at that as well. And all of this is important because we're moving towards this critical junction talking about loving God with us. If we love God with only our minds, like we talked about last week, we're going to be cold people. If we love God with only our hearts, we're just going to be uh, emotive people that love God with our relationships and love God relationally. But the Bible talks about a more connected version of that. So we're coming to this critical junction of what does it mean to love God with actually who we are in real life, not just in here. Uh, and someone last week observed that our church is a church of introverts. Uh, some of us are not. Glad you're here, Allie. But most of us, Sarah, good for you. Katie, good for you. But most of us are introverts. And so this is actually a really important part for us. Can we love God outside of this frame? So we're going to do a word study. We're going to do a study of this word soul in the Old Testament. And a word study, this is really dorky, and so I'm glad you braved the storm for this. A word study is, this sometimes freaks people out, there's no dictionary that says this is what these Hebrew words mean. I don't know if you knew that, but really the way that we know what the Bible means and the Hebrew words mean is we look at them in context. 
And we see all of the times that those, that word was used. And from that, we derive this is what it means. So we're going to look at a word study where we look at this word, uh, nefesh, word for soul in the Old Testament. It's used over 700 times in Hebrew. And so we're going to look at these definitions to find out what is the Bible talking about when it says, love God with your soul. Uh, the first most basic, like most of the uses of the word soul or this word nefesh in the Old Testament is for throat or neck. Uh, that like people have a dry neck. Uh, they have a dry throat. Uh, people are thirsty in their nefesh, right? And you get, get, you know, you have a dryness in your nefesh. I would love for us to start using that. Uh, do you have a, it would have been fun during COVID to be like, my nefesh is dry. I have no taste in my nefesh, but that's most of the uses. But then uh, there's a few others, like in Genesis chapter uh, 46, verse 15, talks about the, this group of people and counting the number of them. And it says there were 34 nefesh, 34 persons, whole persons. Uh, Numbers 31, when it's talking about murder, it talks about that if anybody takes the, the nefesh of somebody else, they are a nefesh thief. They rob, they're robbing a whole person from their existence. Anybody who touches or harms a nefesh, a whole person, has taken a, a person out. So it's talking about, oh, nefesh is a whole person uh, in that context. That we're living, breathe, breathing, physical, whole persons. And that's what it's being used at here in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. In Psalm 119, verse 175, the, the marathon psalm, it says this. It says, let my nefesh live so that I might praise you. My entire being praise you. Now, this is just very clever language, as we talked about. It means throat. So there's a part of it where it's like, let my throat live, uh, because we also know the throat is where you can, can die as well, the murder, to think about murder some more. But what this psalmist is saying, there's this, my being, that my being could praise you. And we have that translated, let my soul live that I might praise you. Psalm 42, two to three is probably one of the most beautiful aspects of this being used is the, the classic words. As the deer pants for the water, so my nefesh thirsts for the living God. My, thir my nefesh thirsts for God, the living God. And what this is talking about is the same way that a, that a deer longs for water because he's thirsty, so our entire being, this psalm is saying, my entire being goes to the source of God, of, of living uh, reality, and I go to that so that I might drink. I long for the living God with all that I am. So loving God, just through that quick survey, loving God with your nefesh, with your soul, means to devote your entire physical being and your entire physical existence uh, your limits, your gifts, your talents, your loves, to love God with all of it. And this is uh, the story of the gospel. The, the story of the gospel is, is that we were created as whole beings. Uh, we weren't created as mythical mists in the air, but when God creates 
uh, Adam and Eve, he, he breathes life into them. He makes them in the image of God that they might demonstrate and reflect who God is and his entire character, that they would be with God. Uh, the, the first humans are walking around living in that reality of Psalm 42. They thirst for God and they drink him in deeply. Their whole life of finding animals and naming them and getting fruit and just being alive and communing with one another, they're living the good life where their soul loves God. But then sin distorts it and destroys it. It entangles these humans and it entangles us and it imprisons us. So the Greeks were kind of right when they say uh, that, that our souls are trapped and we're, we're encaged, you know, like we're, we're put into these prisons. That, that is what sin has done to us, that we're in prisons and we can't get out of it. We're caught trying to reach out and reclaim a life with our entire being. And so we try to restore ourselves. Uh, we do it through pleasure. Like if I just have enough fun and have enough good things, then I, my, my nefesh won't be dry anymore. Uh, we do it through security. If I can make sure that nobody steals from me, then maybe that will restore what was lost and I will feel alive. We do it through self-actualization of if I can perform well enough and, and achieve enough and have this sense of wholeness that I've created for myself, then, you know, I will be alive. Or we do it through self-care. You know, if I could really take care of the dry parts of my heels, you know, it's cracky and all of it. <laughs> yeah, Mirella's aware. Uh, but to do that, I would have to wear different types of shoes. And I'm like, just not willing to give that, not really surrender that part of me. But if I could care for myself well enough, if I could get the right combination of diet and counseling and therapy, and if I could do all of that, I can overcome what was lost in the garden, and my nefesh will be alive. We also do it through independence. We look at what's happening. It's like the problem has been that other people tell me what to do with my life, with my whole being, and if I can get to the point where nobody can tell me what to do anymore, then I will be alive. That's kind of the, the small, subtle, sometimes not so subtle, draw that we have with wealth and finances. The American dream is that you could have enough money to be truly independent where nobody can tell you what to do. And so we're stuck, though, because we try all of those things and we're still... a uh, mishmash of past wounds. Our families are still our families. Our background still our background. Our identity is still our identity. And we're just in this place of grief and trying to overcompensate. And you look back and you're like, oh yeah, sin destroys. It destroys that sense of being alive. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you try to map out your life, and you say, this is how I'm going to get the right sleep. This is how I'm going to get the right diet. This is how I'm going to make sure I do the right counseling and all of those things. And a few days into it, you realize that there's these other people and there are these things deep within you that prevent you from being alive. We're stuck. How do we get out? It's the good news that Jesus doesn't love the world with his heart alone. When, when Jesus says, I, I, I love the world. It's not just with his heart. 
that he, that he feels and he longs and he has desire for us. I mean, that would be, that's great news, that alone. Like, we're a big, huge mess, and God longs for us. That's, that's delightful. You know, a lot of people believe the, the cosmos, the universe cares for us. It's like, oh, that's, that sounds like really lovely, but it's not just that Jesus loves us with his heart or that, that Jesus doesn't just love us with his mind. You know, that he conceives of us and he thinks of us often and he, he has this will and this purpose and he's done all of this planning and he's explored the problem. He knows the problem. That it's not just that God loves us with his own, whole mind. I mean, that would be wonderful too. Him coming and saying, this is the blueprint to get you out of the mess. I've done all the research. I've done all of the studies. I know I'm all knowing and here it is to you. Like God, God does love us with his whole mind and with his whole heart. But what makes the gospel the gospel is that it doesn't stop there for God. God also loves the world with his entire nefesh, who he is, his whole being, all that he was. This is some of the mystery and the amazing aspects of the incarnation that, that God is just not, is not only a, a brain or a heart, but it comes in the flesh comes as a person who then is, is bound with a, with a story. He has parents, and he has cousins, and he has neighbors, and he has friends, and he, he comes in a time with the language, and he speaks it and knows it. He, he's confined. I mean, think about the, the all-knowing, you know, Lord and creator of the universe coming and saying, I'm confined now by Aramaic language and grammar. But he comes and he loves with all of that. He loves with his physical life, the way that he walks and he talks and the things that he enjoys and the, the laughter and his whole being and his whole personality. It's not just that God loves you with his heart or just loves you with his mind, but he loves you with everything that he is. And this is how the gospel isn't just a nice idea or a wonderful message simplistic and lovely. It's not a talk about how God has these wonderful intentions that you would know him, these wonderful intentions that you would be saved and redeemed. No, there's this holistic reality. Because when Jesus hangs on the cross, his nephesh dies. When the, the people in Numbers are talking about, you know, the person who kills a nephesh is a person who steals nephesh Jesus hangs on the cross next to thieves, dying his whole being. His past, his story, his life, his personality, the things that he likes, him, he's dying. But then when Jesus rises from the dead on the Sunday morning, it's not just his heart raising from the dead or his mind raising from the dead, and he's coming as a ghost, but he actually comes as a whole person. With the memory and the relationships and the whole drive, he comes as a resurrected from the dead, from the tomb. He comes and he's alive completely. And so in the same way, we not only need to have our mental lives resurrected and renewed or our emotional lives changed and transformed, but we need a remaking and a resurrecting of our entire selves. We need our stories raised from the dead. We need our personalities raised from the dead, our backgrounds, our, our uh, longings, our likes, the things that we enjoy, our entire hobbies. We need all of it raised from the dead. 
no longer distorted and entangled by sin. Our entire being raised up. This is why Christianity has such a unique view on life. Uh, Christianity is not a thinking religion only. It's not a believing religion only. Christianity is something that is lived in practice. It's pretty phenomenal. That's, that is to renew and redeem every aspect of human existence. Not just an in inner life, but every aspect of existence. A personal cloud and an aura doesn't need to be redeemed. The resurrection is for all of you, your whole self. So then how do you love God with that whole self? Now we're at the point of the sermon, yeah? Song of Songs or Song of Solomon does not get read a lot you know, in church because we feel awkward about it because it's very sensual and, uh, and it's aw- awkward to do, but it's a pretty great book. Maybe we should do a study on it and it not be. Anyway, in Song of Songs chapter three, uh, the, the writer of it, this, this woman is talking about the one that she loves and how much she loves that one that she's giving her whole self to. And she repeats this phrase, it's beautiful, beautiful poetry, but she says, you know, the one my soul loves. She goes, I will do this and this and this and this for the one my soul loves, for the one my nephesh loves. And she's talking about this thing that we all know uh, when you fall in love, whether it was like 13 or 14 or 35 that when you fall in love and when you love someone, it is a full body experience. And I'm not just talking like sexually, I'm just saying it, it's how love works deep within you. Um, when you fall in love, you start talking to them, thinking about them, you know, in your brain. You conceive of them, you engage them on like an intellectual level. Like, what do you think? You, you gather data, you know, when you're falling in love. Do you, have y'all ever done that? I don't know if you guys have fallen in love before, the way you're looking at me, <laughs> seems like. But you, you know, I remember when I was first falling in love with Mirella, we'd go on these d- lunches. She would take off work, we'd go have lunch, and we would talk about politics, and I would gather this data about where she grew up and how she lived. Uh, and you love, I loved her with my mind, like, she's so smart. Uh, and then I began to love her with my heart, like, she's so kind. She's so wonderful. But then as you fall in love, you get this deep ache within you that alters everything about what you're going to be, right? When you fall in love with someone, you start to be like, ah, now this changes how I want to exist in this world. This changes how I thought my future was going to go. I'm willing now to consider rethinking all of the plans I have for my life because I'm in love. Uh, It changes how you think about your present, You know, like, I don't care about hanging out with those friends anymore. I don't care about doing any of those other things. All my things is my time, my calendar, my schedule. It's all consumed by my love that I have for this other person. It rethinks how you do your hobbies. You're like, oh, is this something she would like? Oh, now I'm going to get into this thing because that's what they like. Have you ever done that? Some of y'all, you're like, no, that's codependent love. I don't do that. (laughs) It changes how you think about your cooking and your food and your eating. You're like, oh, that's what they eat. 
Maybe I should learn how to do, you know, a meal so that I can show them how I love. Changes how you eat. Oh, I shouldn't eat with my mouth open. That could be gross. I must change the way that the pace in which I eat. Let's eat slow so that I can enjoy. Changes your taste. It changes your wardrobe. You know, if you think my wardrobe is bland now, you should have seen my wardrobe before. Even more bland. It changes how you think about your family. It changes your work. changes your budget. It changes all of the different aspects of who you are as a person. And what the, the beauty of the, the writer of Song of Songs is saying is that is how you love God with your soul. This, the way that, that a lover thinks at night, I want to give every aspect of my life to this person. The, the altering of your entire process for existing in this world will never be the same because you love God because you love who he is, a complete altering of your life around a person. How do you access that dormant love from your soul? Because that's the underlying reality of like, but I don't feel that. I don't long for that, for my whole life to be oriented around a love for God. How do you get back into that? There are some practices that help you remember, oh, I've been raised to a tangible life with God. There are disciplines that don't help you like cognitively remember. Like when we read the scripture, we're cognitively becoming aware, oh right, this is who God is and what he's done. But that we need other practices that help us live remember. Does that make sense? There are things that help us emotionally remember that we talked about these practices, but how do you then bring your entire self to remember? Uh, I once had a, an old wise pastor ask me a great question once at a season when I was very apathetic towards God and my life, like with God. And he asked me this question, do you have a good friend? And I was like, of course I have a good friend. I'm not a total loser. I have a good friend. Yeah, that's not your wife, yeah. He did make that. Do so you have any friends besides Mirella? Because she's kind of like contractually obligated. <laughs> he says, do you, have any good, do you have a good friend? And I said, yes. And then this wise person says, how about you go spend time with them? Do something that they like to do. And when we are with them, notice what it's like to have a friend that sees you. Notice what it feels like to enjoy an afternoon doing something together. Make note of the times that you laugh and what it feels like when somebody cares about you. And that's how you're going to remember how God cares for you. What it's like to be seen by God, what it's like to be known, what it's like to be enjoyed. And that's what it's like to be in the presence of God. So go, taste the God, God's joy and love that's being showered over you, by having a friend and going spending time with a friend, which that was life to me because I was at this point of like, I, you know, I've spent all this money to know the Bible, so I know it, and it's still my heart is dry. I've, you know, mastered counseling, still nothing. And it's like, I think you need to go hang out with a friend and in your body remember what it's like 
to be loved and to be seen. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9 kind of builds on this concept. I'm just hitting all the wisdom literature in this series, but Ecclesiastes 9 is kind of like life is meaningless, most of the book. But then he starts talking about how uh, there are those of us who are alive and know that we're alive, that there's this really great thing. He says, if anyone who is among the living has hope, or anyone who is among the living has hope, saying like, if you're alive, you have hope. You know, even a living dog is better than a dead lion. And I think he's talking about us, you know, it's like, huh, you might be a dog and you're better than a lion that's dead, but you're alive. It goes on to say, go eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved of what you do. Which I think is kind of in the stark contrast of the way that we try to repair and restore our souls. And then Jesus has come and loved us with his, his whole self, died with his whole self, raised himself to life. And now we're raised to life and it's like you're now approved of. Like God stands over you and says, I love who you are. And so he says, go eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart because God's already approved of it. And then verse 10, he says, whatever your hands find to do, I kind of love this advice and this wisdom. Sometimes we're very anxious of like, what's the right thing to do? What do I need to do with my time? I've got all this time, what am I supposed to do with it? And he says, whatever your hands find to do, whatever you have to do, whatever you stumble into, do it with all of your might. From the realm of the dead where you're going, because one day you'll die, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Be alive because you're alive. And if I could summarize the, the whole passage, it's that you're living, so live. You've been raised to hope, so have hope. Go, eat your food, do your things, enjoy the wine, have a joyful heart, because God already approves of you. And so there's some practices I've been building up towards. One is just recreating, like having a body and moving it that reminds you of the joy that it is to be alive. Uh, during COVID, I did these very cheesy workout videos with this guy in England, really great, total body project. Thank you, mate, really great. But in the middle of every workout, he's like, isn't it good? We're reminding ourselves that we're alive. Isn't this good? And I was like, yeah, this is really good. But that's the sort of thing, recreating, moving your body to remind yourself that you're alive. You know, you could go, you could be into hiking and surfing or cycling, or you could get really into snorkeling or paddleboarding. You could be a person who runs or a person who skis on snow, which is the greatest worship service you could ever have, is to ski on snow. That's just my little aside. Um, so if it was a snowstorm coming, I would be very stoked. Anyway. As you do these things, as you do these hobbies, or these recreating activities, be aware of God's goodness to you. Why you enjoy these things? Why is it that I enjoy this thing? And what does that tell me about God's heart for me? Uh, what are you seeing as you do these? Uh, Eugene Peterson just called this stuff actively playing with God. And that God longs to play with you. You know, we have a lot of little children in our church 
I don't know if you've ever seen a parent get down on their hands and knees to play this activity that the, the parent knows. You know, one of my favorite things is to watch a parent sit on the floor with the little shapes, you know, a circle and a triangle and a star, and have the kid put them in the right one. And to see the, the father or the mother be like, that's right, the circle goes in the circle. You're so great. You're awesome. And that's the delight that the parent has. And just the child playing, right? And as we recreate and we do these activities, do you know that God delights over you? That's what's been restored in the gospel. So have an active life. You know, for me, paddleboarding is one of those big things. Uh, when I go out into the ocean on a paddleboard early in the morning, I feel the waves beneath me because there's no way to get out from that and the rhythm of the waves. And the further I go out, the more small I feel. And I believe God uses that to remind me of just how small I am and insignificant in this huge, vast ocean. I feel God be big. I feel God be beautiful. Even his control over things that are unseen beneath. And all of that teaches me about God and his fondness for me. And even just the basic little dolphin coming up and going back into the water. And it's like, wow, here's a dolphin having life. Like they're coming out of the water just for the heck of it. Like a dolphin jumps up and like does these things, not because anyone trained them, but just out of the joy that exists within them. Like, can I be like that in my life? So that's how my recreating impacts me. Uh, There's also hobbies. You can do hobbies. Uh, We should be hobbyists with your leisure time. These are things that we enjoy just for the sake of enjoying them and doing them. Like there's no huge outcome from it. Uh, They're they're gifts that that we receive. Just like in the Garden of Eden, they were given a life. They weren't just all out there working and gathering fruits and vegetables, but they were living. Uh, Hobbies also remind us of the garden city to come, where God has provided everything for us, and we dwell with God, and yet we live and we do things like hobbies, uh, that we realize we're meant to dwell with God. Uh, It could be something like sewing or baking bread or gardening or woodworking. There's so many hobbies out there. But to do that practice to remind yourself that God is actually just pleased with me and the things that I enjoy doing with my hands. Uh, For me, that's, I like to garden because it reminds me that my work isn't futile. I like to do gardening because at the end, the grass is mowed, the vegetables are coming up, the thing that was chaotic and muddy is no longer chaotic and muddy, and it makes me feel this sense of non-toil, and so I love gardening. And there's the rain, it's coming, it's like a sound machine. (laughs) Uh, So that's one. Another act, so we have hobbies and we have recreating, and then we also have enjoying art. The artists were put on this earth to help us see and know life that's around us. Like all of these paintings, all of these sculptures, uh, fashion and uh, music and all of this stuff was not like given to us as some weird bonus of like, I guess if you're really into spending a lot of money on stuff, you can. Then God created artists so that they would be kind of a passageway for us to remembering to see the world and to celebrate God's presence and his grace in this world. 
Even any artist that is creating and doing wonderful work, you look at it and you say, oh my gosh, the God who created them is so creative that he not only created a world that would inspire people, but he also created humans with a particular gift to then inspire us and extend God's creativity through them. And so, like, watch a good movie or eat good food because chefs are artists too. That's what, there's a little, like, uh, amen. Uh, mixologists and bartenders are artists too. Musicians are artists too. Uh, go and experience these creative forces in this world to remind you that God made the world for the living, not for the doing. Just to remind yourself of that. My last practice is to enjoy your place. Uh, enjoy the hills, the oceans, the, the vibe. You know, I feel like I'm only romantic about Los Angeles at night. Like that's when I'm most romantic about it. When I'm driving around or I'm walking around in the city and it's at night and you're like, ah, this is a city with an energy and with a vibe, right? Am I the only one? It's at night. Not at three o'clock in the afternoon when it's sunny and it, you're like, oh, I can smell everything. But no, but at night, it's so fantastic. But one of the things I'd even challenge us to do is to be a people that actually love this place, uh, to love the things that this place loves. So Danielle Bowditch, actually, we did a little exit interview when she was moving and she was not going to be the worship uh, director anymore. And she had this wonderful idea. She's like, I think that you need to challenge people in the church to actually love the Lakers and actually love the Dodgers and actually like tech and get really, like, if you're gonna be in this city, what if you loved and enjoyed the things that the city loves? To just remind yourself. And so she had like this very practical thing of we're all on social media. Follow one of the Lakers accounts like on social media. It can be the Laker account, or I could give you a lot, so could Nate. It's really great. Follow a Dodger account. Follow Angel City FC, the women's professional soccer team. Follow them, and just, as you look, they have images of like, oh, right, there's this thing that our city enjoys. Uh, follow entertainment accounts, or follow the mayor. I think it's at Karen Bass, L.A., Follow the police. Follow a, a tech entrepreneur account. If you're not on social media, you can subscribe to all of their newsletters and just become a person who's aware of what the city is doing. Get hyped up about the things. I know this sounds, this is my weird. Buy a Laker shirt. They don't need the money, but it could be a great thing. Buy a Laker shirt and wear it. And in summary, we do all of these practices, and the world does these things too. The world does recreation, does hobbies, loves the Lakers, uh, goes to art museums and watches movies. But we do all of these practices not as a distraction to say, I can't handle the world, I need to get away. But we do it as a way of remembering the joy that God has for us the joy that it is to be alive in Christ in such a way that God the Father gets on the floor with us and enjoys to play because we exist and he's redeemed us and he's restored us. That you're not a, a chamber uh, with a brain, 
that you're not just a vehicle for emotions, but that you are a whole person that God cares about and loves. And I believe that as we step into that reality, as we live in that reality, what we'll be challenged with most is this deep satisfaction that God has our life for us, that he has given us back a full life. Um, sometimes in the, if you think about the movie Shawshank Redemption, the best movie ever, I tried, not the best movie ever, I take that back, that was hyperbole, me just getting caught in the moment. It's a good movie. <laughs> in that movie, it's, a lot of it's about freedom and hope, right? And what I think what's amazing is, is that knowing that there's a life outside of, the wall, uh, outside of the walls of the prison doesn't give people hope. Like the prisoners, to be aware, oh, over there, they're living life. So that gives me hope. Doesn't give them hope. The only way to actually have hope is to be taken outside of the walls of confinement and captivity and be placed in a world that is alive. And what God has done through Jesus and his life and death and resurrection is taken you out of captivity and put you into the realm of the living. So as the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, go and eat, go and drink, go do what your hands have to do knowing that you have a living hope. And so I pray that that's what we would experience as we do these practices. And as we come and take communion, uh, such a tangible, physical symbol that God gives us, where he holds it up and is like, this is my body, this is my blood. Like, take these things, not just a cognitive experience, but a, a, a devoured thing. Take the wine and enjoy it. Take the bread and eat. That's the invitation to all through Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we adore you and we long to adore you with our entire being. God, I, I pray for us as we enter this time that through the bread, through the wine, we would be reminded of our whole lives being restored by you. Uh, thank you for the pleasure and the joy it is to get together and be reminded of your goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.